Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of Commonplace with Ann Boyer. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Ann Boyer is the author of several chapbooks and books, including The Romance of Happy Workers, A Handbook of Disappointed Fate, and one of my favorite books, Garments Against Women. In 2018, Ann Boyer won the Whiting Award. She has been teaching writing at the Kansas City Art Institute since 2007. Boyer's newest book, another of my all-time favorites, is The Undying, a nonfiction, genre-bending memoir about her diagnosis at the age of 41 of highly aggressive triple-negative breast cancer, and the treatment Boyer, a single mother living paycheck to paycheck, received. The cover of The Undying features a snake wrapped around a syringe and these subtitle words arranged like a timeline or graph or a kind of spine. Pain, vulnerability, mortality, art, time, dreams, data, exhaustion, cancer, and care. The Undying is about all these things and more. It is about capitalism and the carcinogen sphere, cancer hoaxers, fetishists and vloggers, the gendered politics of medical care, and the history of women writing about cancer. And it is truly an extraordinary book. There are two reasons I'm struggling right now to introduce this episode. The first is that Ann Boyer's work defies description because, like the very best works, it requires the creation of a new critical language. Ann's work is and is not difficult. It is intensely readable, and readers love her work with a cultish passion. When I announced that Anne, who loves writing but hates publishing and agrees to very few interviews, agreed to record a conversation with me, the Commonplace team freaked out. Why were we so excited? Because the stakes of writing are palpable in Anne's writing. Or, as Commonplace producer Katie Fernelius put it, Anne's poetic practice insists on the material conditions of poetry. Her work doesn't seem to hold language up to a lofty ideal, but rather investigates the institutional, effective, economic origins and impacts of language. This is part of what makes The Undying a startling, urgent intervention, as author Sally Rooney put it. Or, to quote a few reader reviews of Garments Against Women, This book is dope as hell. Very readable if poetry is not your thing, and formally elegant if it is. I read this book and turned inside, never to recover. Ann Boyer will blow your brains out in a good way. The most accurate description I can offer of Ann's work is that it embodies and describes what it is to be, to live, in the right now. Clearly, you're going to need to read it for yourself if you have not already had the great pleasure of doing so already. The second reason this introduction is difficult to write is that I am angry. So angry, I can barely speak or write. And I'm worried about this anger. No one likes an angry woman, says Katie McCoy to Tammy Taylor on Friday Night Lights. And it's not just about like. According to Vice, a 2015 study published in the journal Law and Human Behavior shows that angry women are less likely to wield influence over others, while the inverse is true for their upset male counterparts. 
So I'm trapped. Because right now my anger, anger at the material conditions that Ann Boyer makes visible in her books, at the misogyny and racism in our medical system, at the devaluation of care and the pathologizing of female power, ambition, creativity, and wisdom, at how the extinguishing of this wisdom is literally killing us. My anger, which ironically for me, having recently had my uterus removed, was, until the 1950s, classified as a medical disorder, hysteria. My anger is what's driving me, keeping me awake and alert and alive and vigilant against the death-dealing forces of white supremacy, the heteropatriarchy, and capitalism. But the way my anger is feared and detested by society makes me less likely to be able to effectively act against these forces. And while my anger is not an illness, the stress caused by the fact that my anger is perceived as an illness is actually likely to make me sick. Well, all this is making it difficult for me to honestly, fully, truly tell you why I love Ann Boyer. I love Ann Boyer because her Marxist, feminist, urgently radical, formally inventive gorgeousness makes me very, very, very angry. I tell Ann at the beginning of our conversation, which I recorded on September 25th, 2019 at my apartment, just a few hours before Ann was scheduled to read at Book Culture, I tell Ann that I started dreaming about her. And Anne tells me about a nightmare she had a few nights earlier in which her loved ones, but not her, have cancer and how angry she was. Both of us are talking in a way about our concerns that her book and our anger will derail or destabilize readers. Clearly, we both sometimes want and need to derail and destabilize, but our concern comes out of how much we both care for our readers and listeners. I offer this conversation, along with conversations upcoming with Darcy Steinke, author of Flash Count Diary, Menopause, and the Vindication of Natural Life, and with Jennifer Block, author of Everything Below the Waste, Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution, because I'm angry, and because I care. Because in order to talk about language and poetry and art and social justice, we have to talk about illness, wellness, the body, the mind, and the material conditions that affect and often define our language, arts, lives, and deaths, our living and dying. Speaking with Ann Boyer about the forces of vengeance and love, and about how she kept the door to hell open in order to write this book, was destabilizing and inspiring, stabilizing, and enraging. I can't wait to hear from you, listeners, about your reactions to this conversation and to Ann Boyer's work. For this episode, all Commonplace patrons will get access to two audio files. One is of Ann reading from Garments Against Women, and the other is a full-length recording I made at Book Culture on Columbus, an independent bookstore in New York City in which Anne reads from The Undying and is afterwards joined in conversation by Natasha Leonard, author of Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. Some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of The Undying, Garments Against Women, 
and The Romance of Happy Workers, all by Anne Boyer. Many thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, Asada Press, and Coffeehouse Press for copies of these fabulous books. To find out how to become a patron, get access to these and other amazing patron extras, and revel in the knowledge that it is your support that makes this podcast possible, please visit commonpodcast.com, where you can also find links to the authors and texts mentioned in this episode, as well as a transcript of this conversation, thanks to Amain Gruich and Justin Todd Smith, and where you can sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode, provides a little more info about the episode, news about me, and recommendations for social action. Here is the living goddess, the undying wonder, Anne Boyer. This is not the way that I start most of these, but I just have to tell you that your work has really fucked me up. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not at all apology worthy. Um, but uh, I am kind of tired in part because I have been dreaming about you. Um, I keep like listening to these uh interviews with you and um, reading stuff about you um, and like rereading your work before I go to bed, <laughs> which I have to stop doing because it's just, it's like stirring everything up in this amazingly important way. Like I think the best work really just derails me. Um, but it's always hard to explain that, like read this book, it's going to totally mess you up. But that's what you want. Well, sort of. I mean, I worry about that sometimes, too, um, because work, especially work that has to do with difficult things, it, you worry that it might destabilize readers or people who bring their own experiences to it. So I always wish I could just put like a caution sign about when to read it or the, the place and the time, um, maybe before bed, especially with the cancer stuff. Maybe not a good it's, idea. It's not the best for people. I yeah. mean, it depends the way that... I mean, it, it fucks me up, too. Yeah. I mean, I had... As, I'll, I'll just start with this. I had this nightmare the night before last, which was the worst, like, straight out of the battlefield nightmare about mm. cancer in which my ex-girlfriend, Cassandra, and my daughter and a couple of poets I really admire all had cancer in the mm. dream. And they were all going through chemotherapy and we were locked in a house, which was like a cancer ward. And I was so full of rage. So I didn't have cancer in the dream. They had cancer in the wow. dream. They were showing the visible signs of chemotherapy. And I woke up screaming. Oh. I woke up so mad. And in the dream, the dream, I was just screaming, just like, well, somebody did this to us. This isn't natural. Like, we, the, 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 there's something against us. Like, why is this happening to us? And I was so angry to watch the people I loved and admired going through the thing. And then I, ha I had to wake myself up, right, just shrieking and wailing in a way I'd never done in waking life. Like, I'd never 
this whole time that I was sick or something. I never screamed like that. And then I woke up and then I had that holy shit moment where I was like, no, I went through that. Mm. So then there's like that other ring of devastation. And then, so once you get through the, no, that was me that I, I went through that, that was, that was my body. And then I had the realization, oh God, but the people who loved me were watching this thing too, right? Mm. So that whatever it was that I felt, the frustration I felt in the dream watching these people I loved and admired. I mean, so it wasn't just, it was my ex-girlfriend, my daughter, and then a couple of poets I just sort of know, but really admired. So you know, like those women that you hold up on the kind of pedestal as like the top of their their game. And, um, and so I thought, well, how am I gonna talk about the book? Because like clearly there's still all that, since I was talking to my editor today, it's like, well, I op- it's like opening the gates of hell, mm. right? This is the, the opening the book is like opening the gates of hell. Well, if I have that, if and I'm the one who's got the f- years of therapeutic, like aestheticizing of experience, right? Like I like wrestled the demons into a book and all that. And I think, oh God, the readers who have watched people with cancer themselves have had it. Like there is that feeling always of worry or concern or hoping that you've been responsible in the way that you've done the telling to not mess people up so who knows yeah but yes yes and I mean we're all gonna be sick and we're all gonna die And so there's another part of me that feels like, you know, I don't like writing blurbs at all, but Mm -hmm. for some reason with the undying, I kept writing blurbs in my head, like not blurbs (laughs) that anyone would actually want to put on a book, but, you know, things like not for the faint of heart (laughs) for everyone, you know, for everyone whose heart is like still beating, Um, you know, or you this book will destroy you. You must read it immediately. I mean, I guess I, I feel like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I feel similarly in, in, in a much maybe uh, less intense way about um, my book that just came out. Like I was asked to uh, hold up a copy and smile and take a photo for social media. And I was like, I do not want anyone to think that this book is a happy book <laughs> or that anybody reading it will be smiling. This is like, terrible false advertising oh god and so you know i imagine you must feel like that you know even more and more and more and more um and yet i i know um firsthand that i'm not the only one who feels incredibly uh i don't want to use i want to use this word but we're going to talk about this later the problems with gratitude but i Mm -hmm. do feel incredibly grateful that you wrote this book and then i read it and i really want everyone to read it even though yes it is a little bit confusing to figure out like who to give this to as a gift right you know but that's 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 not real you know that's um anyway let's back up okay all right we can back up i'm sorry to start with no no not at all um, okay so you're so you're most no i feel like that's actually exactly the right place to start um but so your most recent book is The Undying, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I don't know what you call it formally, or even if you care about the word, you know, whether you think of it as um, prose. It's it's not 
it's not like most prose. It's certainly not like most memoir. Uh, it's certainly not like most cancer memoirs. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do talk about your experience um, having cancer. And um, I still, I, we'll talk about this too. Like I think of you as a poet no matter oh, what. I am a poet no matter what. Right. <laughs> um, but do you want to just start off by reading from The Undying yes, a little I bit? and then I figured out what I was going to read. Oh, and now I can't figure out where Well, take your was. time. Take your time. Um, Um, Uh, You can see that my copy has like 15 um, or more little post-its in here (laughs) because I also clearly could not figure out. It's, um, oh, I'll just read this passage um, from, somewhat from the beginning. We are told cancer is an intruder to be fought or an errant aspect of ourselves or an overambitious cell type or an analogy for capitalism or a natural phenomenon with which to live or a certain agent of death. We are told it is in our DNA or we are told it is in the world or we are told it is located in the confused admixture of genes and environment that no one can locate or wants to. We are given only the noisy half of probability that its cause is located inside of ourselves and never the quiet part of probability that cancer's source pervades our shared world. Our genes are tested. Our drinking water isn't. Our body is scanned, but not our air. We are told it is in the air of our feelings or told it is in the inevitabilities of our flesh. We are told there is a difference between illness and health, between what is acute and what is chronic, between living and dying too. The news of cancer comes to us in the same sort of screens as the news about elections, in email at the same minute as invitations to LinkedIn. The hash marks of the radiologist are the same as those of the drone pilots. The screen life of cancer is the screen life of all mediated global terror and unreality, too. Cancer doesn't feel real. Cancer feels like an alien that industrial capitalist modernity has worried into an encounter, mid-astral, semi-sensory, all terrible. Cancer's treatment is like a dream from which we only half wake to find that half waking is another chapter in the book of the dream, a dream that is a document and a container for both waking and sleep, any pleasure and all pain, the unbearable nonsense and with it all erupted meaning, every moment of the dream too vast to forget and every recollection of it amnesiac. I've heard you say that you have historically specific cancer. Um, would you, would you describe what you mean by that? Because I think it's related to the passage that you just read. Well, I mean, I think it's important. There's these various competing narratives about cancer. Um, and some of them kind of present cancer as a monolithic disease, which it isn't, right? It's a set of malignancies that all take different shape and different form. Um, part of that advertising of cancer as a monolith is a thing that exists sort of like as a united whole in itself is that it's always with us in the same way that it sort of travels through history um, in the same way say a virus would or or something like that Um, even viruses change with history change with with the way that society is organized environmental factors political and social factors and so does cancer the problem is we just don't know we know we have more of it we don't know why Mm. 
we know certain people get it more than other sorts of people. Um, this all seems to track along lines of class, of race, um, of different relationships to medicine, different relationships to environmental pollution, um, and different environmental stressors. But it's all this like incredibly opaque and kind of paranoid structure of etiology of causation. And so this is what looking at cancer, you know, there's like the looking, oh, here's the narrative I get presented in something like um, The Emperor of Maladies, which kind of presents it as this like epic historical struggle against one thing. And then there are all these ambient facts, ambient contradictory facts. Um, but because my cancer wasn't genetic, so some people get triple negative, have strong genetic components. Mine wasn't. And um, so I had to sort of put together a set of causes, none of them will ever be accurate. None of them will ever be specific. Um, I don't have it in the book, but I kept my iPhone in my bra when I exercised. So I used to be like a gym, gym goth. I'd spend all my time in the weight room. And I would put my iPhone in my bra and um, my tumor, the biggest tumor, was right where my iPhone had always been kept in my mm. bra. And I had this terrifying moment of memory where my daughter told me not to carry my phone in the mom way, which is apparently all moms put their phones in their bra. And that she'd instructed me at some point not to do it, but I was like, oh, well, this just se this seems like a good pocket, or it seems like I'm going to put it here. And on one of the cancer boards I was on, other women with triple negative were talking, well, why do you think you got it? And the number of women who had their phones, who kept their phones in their bra, Right. Mm. That's one of them. Some of them had been scoliosis patients who had had a lot of x-ray. Others were um, dental assistants or people who had professional exposure to radiation and carcinogens. Um, even people who had the genetic component often were in environments or that that seemed to be permeated with carcinogens um, because just because you have the genes doesn't mean you'll get the cancer. Um, and so it became really apparent to me that in a different world, in a differently structured world, this cancer was not inevitability. It wasn't written there on my palm, like a fortune teller was gonna say, here's your cancer, but that it came out of a set of um, oh, environmental causes, probably environmental triggers. Um, the problem also with that logic is like, then can I blame myself? Do I blame myself? Where do I look? Cause you know, in the dream where I'm sort of like screaming, but this isn't natural, this is done to us. Mm. And, um, unfortunately we're often meant to go back upon our own individual behavior to make a kind of moral judgment um, that if I'd been smarter, if I'd been more aware, if I had um, lived a better life in some way, I wouldn't have met that challenge. And I refuse to think like that too. Mm -hmm. um, and so it seems to me like that the best thing I could do, like I couldn't find precise cause like that that was not in my capacity um, just as a poet writing a book, but I could at least locate the event in um, inside of all of these kind of historical factors. And I wanted to, to just make it really clear that things don't have to be the way they are, that this is not an inevitable thing, that even if cancer itself with the, with the damage we've done environmentally um, is a kind of like uh, uh, event that's going to happen in, in so many of our lives that the way that medicine responds to it and the way that society responds to it is not inevitable and that there's a better way than the way that we have now. 
Yeah, and certainly that um, who gets treatment, what kind of treatment, how uh, the effect of the treatment, Mm -hmm. um, how the medicine that you're taking to cure your illness can basically kill you, um, and the environmental effects of the treatment. You write about all of this, the economics of Mm -hmm. it, the the way the um, that um, who gets cancer and the treatment and the outcomes um, are are very connected to class and race and um, geography and um, environmental factors. I mean, one of the things about the book that I think is profound is that you somehow have managed to write a book that is unflinching and accurate and reporting, but nothing like any of the um, memoirs or other kinds of books that I've read about illness. It's not trauma porn. It's not (laughs) sentimental. It's not, I mean, there were certainly many moments where my heart was breaking for you, but it wasn't asking my heart to break for you. Um, it was, it was, it felt like an entire philosophy that was very much specifically about cancer and also not about cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, but not, not about cancer in the way that cancer becomes a metaphor for life and death and all these things. And, and I, I've heard you say, um, this thing that, um, philosophy, uh, teaches us how to die and literature teaches us how to live or why to live or why to live and there was no form that you could find that taught you or or described how to be dead um and i loved this phrase that i think was of your from your daughter um living inside a living posthumousness, <laughs> which is a very hard word to say. Um, but I think that describes the book extremely well. So I don't know, I, I guess I wanted to ask, this is a very long, when, long roundabout way to ask a question, and I'm just going to keep asking for one second, because one of my favorite books in the whole, whole world is Midwinter Day by Bernadette Mayer. Mine too. <laughs> and one of the pleasures and frustrations, but frustration in a good way, of reading that book for me, like every time I read it, I think like, okay, yes, Bernadette, but when did you actually write it? How <laughs> did you actually write it? Your your care, you know, your your daughter is having a temper tantrum. Are you are you are you sitting there taking notes? You're putting her to bed. You're you know you're making them food. You know you're you're going out. When? How are you describing all these things? And I had some similar questions about your book, which are not the most important questions. And yet as a writer and a reader, they kept coming back to me like, how is Anne Boyer writing about this extreme um, uh, mental exhaustion and brain damage that's happening from this cancer treatment? with such mental acuity how is she literally able to hold the pen as she is describing to me um you know almost having a heart attack and 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 having and having no energy like almost no life force at all you know being be, kind of being dead how mm-hmm. are you writing 
being dead. And I guess, so I guess, you know, the question is, because I think that that's related to the other thing that I just said in so many words about um, how different the book is. Right. Well, I mean, I have a short answer, which is one word at a time. Mm. It was just that they're just so, so, I mean, I'm not over the disabling effects of treatment. And I've had a really just catastrophic flare of exhaustion this summer Mm. for various reasons. And it's truly like anyone who's had chronic fatigue or all the other kinds of cancer treatment, post-cancer experiences, there's so many different ways that this happens to us um, in our bodies. And it really is just like inside of the fog. Mm. You just... You do it one word at a time, even when you think you can't. Um, with this one, there was a special kind of fire, which was the fire of vengeance. Mm. It's the same thing I felt in the dream where I was just ready to kill someone for giving people cancer. I was just like the rage. I, just my anger not just for me but I'm also mad for me and pissed off for me I things were going pretty great I'd like reached a kind of maybe unusually placid um place in my life right before diagnosis but um but um that it well it's 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 vengeance and it's love. It's the two things, these two fires, which are like the most powerful forces to motivate any human, I think. And um, and so it would be like with the exhaustion thing, which was written out of it was, it was part it was commissioned. So I had this like kind of wonderful motivation because um, I was doing working with Patricia Lennox Boyd, um, the the video artist and. Um, and with that one, it was like I was truly collapsed with exhaustion, and I was so mad about it because I want like the me like I have this desire to live like a huge, wonderful life. So angry that my desires are thwarted by my physical health. I just hate it, and um, and so I had this kind of motive encouragement, like social encouragement, that somebody had wanted to work with me on something, and I had anger. Um, that I I was too disabled to do what I wanted to do. And so kind of like love, admiration for the world, for other people and vengeance against whatever did that. Then I thought, well, I'm just going to sit down each day and do a couple hundred words in which I describe exactly what this feels like. Mm-hmm. Like if I can just write in whatever way, even formally like that, I, I, I feel a little bad. The, the pain and exhaustion parts of the book are the ones which sort of go off the rail of memoir into some other thing, I think, um, in a real way. But that that with the exhaustion when I was like well I want to create what it feels like I, I want to describe the situation but I want to formally create that sort of concatenating um like droning foggy feeling of being too exhausted to do the things you want to do of feeling left behind by time and by life because you can't get enough energy to do what you're supposed to um and so that's how, and you know, the other thing, and this is always sort of a good process, this took five years and this is a tiny book and it just, it really just, during cancer, I kept journals, like really detailed journals, most of which are, you know, nonsense, nobody will ever read, but that writing it down, even if you're not good at writing, 
like even those times when you just have nothing, just wake up, write it down, wake up, write it down. You want to fall down, but write it down first and do that. Collect as much as you can. And then out of that, if you give yourself time um, to really work, like out of that, there's this process, like a poet's process of intensification and refinement and condensation of all that stuff. And then ultimately it happens. And I think that that though one of the challenges of the book, there was the challenge of my physical health writing it, which just I didn't expect I was going to be disabled and then I was and then there's also the challenge of your mental health of trauma um of trying to do this kind of absurd thing which is you know keep the door to hell open longer than you maybe should um and come out of it still all right not to break yourself um which is you know obviously not just a question of illness but anybody who writes about anything that needs to be written about the sort of things that the world does to us is going to have some element um, of having to spend time in places that we wish we'd left behind. Were there people or was there a part of yourself that worried that keeping the door open to hell, um, uh, that the writing of this experience was interfering with your health? You know, that that it was like, you know, don't spend your time writing those few hundred words a day. You should be sleeping. You should be eating this. You should be, you know, something. Um, and, and how did, you know, how did you respond to that? Or did you believe in that? Yeah, none of us thought it was a good idea. I mm -hmm. mean, the, the, obviously, the times in which I had to really intensely work on the book were worrisome to everybody, including me, including my editor, who I think felt really guilty that that I would have to like go back in and do something because he, he knew it was difficult for me. Um, but it's worth it because, I mean, I survived. It's just like, well, okay, well, and like, and so many people help me. So this is the thing. So there's vengeance and there's gratitude. And gratitude is actually a much greater burden than vengeance in the way of how do I? Because I didn't have. So after cancer, then I didn't have a lot of social energy left. And this also made me really sad because a lot of the conversations and engagements that I'd had with the world necessarily went away because I couldn't. It hurt even to sit. So it would hurt to even be on a screen or to sit on a computer sometimes because of various problems I was having. And so every, like my screen time kind of would have to be limited to writing things mm -hmm. and not like G-chatting with my friends anymore, stuff I used to do that made me happy. Um, and so I couldn't figure out the debt of gratitude. And so the book became, I figured, well, I'm kind of okay at writing. This is like the thing that I maybe, you know, other people are, are better at other things. Um, but I will take this one thing that I know that I have some talent at and that this is going to be my way to try to pay back the, the world but it, it was you know it, it it was difficult I mean I I do know so after I have to spend a few weeks promoting the book and then after that I'm never gonna talk about cancer again mm. like I'm just never I'm making I'm gonna do all the other things that I want to do like this is the door is closed um and that hopefully the book, if we talk about it for a few weeks, the people who read it, the ones who like it, can give it its legs and I can go on and think about all the other stuff. I mean, I'm in no 
I'm, I have no desire to convince you to do anything other than what exactly you want to do for the rest of your life. Um, but I, I do think that there is so much to talk about with this book that, again, is and isn't about cancer. Like, formally... This book is a marvel. Like it's it it you're you're it's not a long book, but it's not a short book either. Um, the there are these incredibly, you know, the the passages are short, um, and I could not for the life of me figure out um, kind of the organizational rules of the book <laughs> in a way that I was. I absolutely smitten with and, um, you know, and, and unless I'm wrong and like a really lazy reader, but I don't think I am the, the select, the, the piece that ran in the time, no, in the, um, New Yorker was in the different order and different excerpts. Yeah, that wasn't me. That, right. And and so I was so interested because, you know, I, you know, I liked that when I read it in The New Yorker. But then when I read the book, I was like, this is a totally different text. It's not like, oh, it was wrong the other way. And so, you know, aside from uh, what it was like for you to write, you know, into during about this incredibly horrific experience i mean formally i feel i really feel this book is a lot like midwinter day in these very interesting ways because i know that bernadette mayer talks about kind of rehearsing to write that book and i do feel you know having reread garments against women that there are ways in which um, you rehearsed to to take on this form. Yeah. I don't even know how, what to call the form. Well, and it's strange. So when I set out to write The Undying, I thought I was going to write a different thing. I thought I would write like a really straight uh, argument about cancer and care. And then at some point that seemed utterly ludicrous and impossible and I couldn't teach myself to be a straight nonfiction writer and I had to just take what I'd learned as a poet to make the book. And it was actually like that moment in which I surrendered. It was like, all right, this is going to be related to Garments Against Women somehow. People who've read Garments Against Women are going to see like the little conversation with my daughter and they're going to feel that they're in familiar territory, that there'll be these like little moments in which it's very clearly like a part of the same life, a part of the same voice, even though Garments Against Women is a lot more, um, has a different kind of artifice to it than this one does. This has like probably a little bit more immediacy than than that does. Um and so that, so I guess Garments Against Women did teach me, like the arrangement of that did teach me something about arrangement, but this went through a million different like arrangements and trying to figure it out and like seeing how it all went together, just endless puzzling over parts, which I guess is just what I do. But I like, I like that orchestral or symphonic part of writing. I like the arranging part. I like to see what happens, but I also had to, so this book, it was a bargain that I had to make with myself, which is I wanted it to reach as many people as possible, which meant I had to have a different relationship to the marketplace than I'd ever thought I would ever have always been really kind of averse to it I had to surrender in some ways and when the New Yorker wanted it so they those first rights they bought for the whole book um, and not just a part of it and then they wanted to put together this other kind of thing for the excerpt and the editors there were incredibly intelligent and um, know exactly what they need to do for what they're doing and I just surrendered to their organization to a certain extent I had I think nothing 
to do with how it was arranged. Um, and I thought, well, this is the Bennett, and, and I think they did a good job at creating a kind of narrative that they understand that the readers are going to respond to. I think it would have been much more difficult to have represented the structure of the book as a whole, mm-hmm. um, that they needed a more conventional kind of structure. So they went for it, but I'm glad they did because when they ran that piece, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know, I'm not glad, I'm, I don't know about the arrangement, but I'm glad it was in there because I had people write to me from everywhere with all kinds of experiences of cancer mm-hmm. as oncologists, nurses, patients, caregivers. So many people reached out to me. And we were, I was able to hear so many different stories and perspectives and got this at the point where, I mean, I've been terrified up until I got too, ter- too tired to be terrified a few days ago. It's just, this has been a nerve wracking process, but having it in there, getting some response from people. It's like, oh, I could like feel a little less terror about the book. I could feel if, if, if. You know, an oncologist and a caregiver and a patient all write to me and talk about the way that they've been moved or the ways that they can relate. Maybe it's worth it that I'm doing this. So that helped. But it was, it is curious. I mean, it, it, of course, this is like the, this is one of the problems, I think, anytime a poet like faces the larger commercial marketplace. <laughs> is that the larger commercial marketplace is going to be more conventional than a poet is. Any poet, even conventional poets, are are more experimental than what people imagine the, the sort of mid-range literary marketplace to be. It's always, always there's going to be this kind of tussle between the impulse of the creator and the impulse of those who like have certain venues that, that know the readership, know what it's going to be. Um, and so I surrendered. It was a good practice to surrender. I, I don't know. I probably don't have to do it again. I mean, I don't have to surrender again, you know, that I did it for a reason. When you say, um, well, first of all, the arrangement in the New Yorker, I think you described it super well just now, mm-hmm. you know, that it is more narrative in a certain way or it's or it's more it has more narrative signposts, which right. I think do help readers, you know, with an excerpt. Um, but I don't think that um, the arrangement was like false. No, it was. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, for anyone who read that and loved it. Um, and then buys the book and reads the book, they're not going to be like, what is this? You know, they're, they're going to be like, oh, wow. Yeah, that was my standard, actually, is I think that they can do whatever they want as long as it doesn't feel as if they're being deceived about the book. And I think no. that they were so good at what they did that they managed to both meet their readership's expectations and not betray what I wrote. I mean, overall, it was it was really surprising. It was really quick. It was a turnaround from hearing that they wanted it to it being in the magazine. I think it was 10 days. Oh, I, wow. And this is not, this was a surprise. And also, I mean, you understand being a poet that we don't always imagine the, that to be the arena in which we write. So there was a culture shock to... Um, to making that shift, but I mean, I'm I'm glad it's happened. As I said, it it did exactly what I had hoped, which is readers who aren't part of the literary world that I'm part of, 
um, were able to be exposed to uh, the book that way. And that's my dream. I mean, it continues to be my dream. And I continue to think about, well, how can other people who've had experiences with illness or cancer get to this book that will have never heard of me or had anything um, to do with the, the kind of literary milieu in which I had in my life? So, And is that... Um desire to reach um, more readers and to reach readers who are not necessarily inside the literary community. Mm-hmm. Is that specific to this book and only because of the illness, specifically cancer? Or, you know, I, I just I'm so interested in in how you are experiencing what could be this culture shock mm-hmm. of having something of yours um you know, make it into a more <laughs> general audience and readership. Like, I want that for this book so much. I also want it for Garments Against Women, though. You know, <laughs> I also want it for your other work. And to me, I think it's interesting because, you know, you are a Marxist and you are a feminist <laughs> and you are you are suspicious, to say the least, of the market. And you are, you know, you know you've been... You, first of all, you know, I know that you give away PDFs of of your books um which first of all like why do you do that and why doesn't everyone do that (laughs) oh well everyone should do it because garments against women well before that because i used to just write things on the pdf and that's how i would make friends it's a good way like if you just want friends like you want to meet people that are cool like you you around the world you just make your books available and then you get to meet new people and who, who really can enhance your life um i can't give away pdfs if this one although i'm giving away copies and encouraging my publishers and my agent gave away some like so that we've, we've been doing that um but it'll be in libraries because this is going to be this is the other thing about the crossover is that it gets into libraries into public mm-hmm. libraries in small towns and places where small press books don't get that's exciting that's like another kind of form of giving away that's like a beautiful beautiful form because that's how i i where I learned to read and, and still depend on public libraries and, and the wisdom of librarians everywhere to uh, know what to read. Um, and so, so it's, I mean, I've learned a lot about uh, commercial publishing, um, or I guess what I always thought of as New York publishing. Like I just had this broad category in my head uh-huh. of like the over there-ness. Like that's just the stuff that happens over there. So I've learned a lot about it. And it, it it's um, not as horrifying as I thought in some ways. <laughs> I think before I had a lot, I, I think I, I, think I, I had different, um, I don't know, really stubborn suspicions. Now I'm maybe a little bit more mixed about what it's like. But the idea is to, I just, oh, how do I say this? I always am trying to articulate it. It always sounds really cheesy. But the idea of trusting readers mm. that I think that they haven't been trusted. I think that sometimes we're given problem as if we're infants, right? And that people imagine that people who aren't writers are idiots who can only have, only tolerate like uh, reductive and insultingly conventional forms and thoughts and opinions and that in anything else will be too much for them. And I don't believe that to be true at all. Actually, Garments Against Women reached a lot of readers that I didn't expect to reach. And that's a weird book. Yeah. And, and it turns out 
perfectly fine. Didn't bother. Like the, the strangeness of it or the unexpectedness of it or calling it poetry didn't seem to bother people at all outside of poetry that people got it. And, and, um, and I have this faith in the capacity of readers um, that actually given stuff of substance that it's not that in some ways it's 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 exactly what readers should want that they do want and that the other things that they're given are kind of these like lies like these disappointing lies but that it, that um we have something that that it doesn't have to be uh, siloed off like experimental um or literature over here and commercial literature over there um and I think that it's certainly, it's not just been my experience in this, but watching others, books like Citizen and writers like Maggie Nelson um, achieve a real true popular success, mm-hmm. right? Like world changing success in which their work becomes part of public discourse, like indicates that readers have been starving you know, this reminds me of this thing you said. Um, I'm just going to find the quote. Um, but I, on the page and in real life, I am always just I, I, astonished by, I think I know where you're going to go next with your next thought or word. And I'm always like, what? Um, and then I'm like, of course. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> You, somebody asked you about, you know, the way in which women are kind of um, underrepresented, to say the least, um, and don't and aren't a part of the canon. Yeah, you said, "What a wonderful thing not to have a canon." <laughs> I can't believe I said that. Is <laughs> you that did, <laughs> and you said women maybe have the freedom to imagine. This is not a direct quote. Um, but you said women have the freedom to imagine the literary world we want. Um, something that's not so tied um, to identity or to literature as the activity of geniuses. That is a direct quote. Um, So I think that that's related to this idea of, um, you know, the the possible opportunity of having been excluded from mm-hmm. the market um, that that is occurring right now with your work, with this book in particular, with um, Claudia Rankin, with Maggie Nelson. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, what is the world or what is the literary world that maybe women, you can imagine because we haven't been part of the canon. And it's not just the literary world, it's the whole damn world, right? All of the people, and it's not just women, it's like every group of people for for whatever reason has um, been either silenced or made to only perform certain kinds of, uh, like, certain kinds of routines of self-expression, right? So to write the melodrama or the sentimental account or, like, to uh, perform outrage in certain kinds of ways. Like, you know, you, you get this slot. That slot's yours. Like, that form's yours. It's all you get. So for everybody... Um, who who has been excluded from the canon or only made to occupy various um, really like kind of repulsive and constructive corners of it. It's like, well, God, like we can imagine multitudes, right? We have universes. And this is what Rimbaud says, right? It's like when women can finally be poets, like 
this world. Like that's when the true poetry will be achieved. Like that, that, that for those whose voices have, have um, been dampened or suppressed, being allowed um, finally to come in to um, our own creations and our, our own voices in all the sort of multiple ways we can, ways where one woman doesn't have to write like the next, where we get to exist in like generous disagreement, where we have real stakes about about form and about what we're doing and um, a, a world in which you can have more than one woman in a room, mm. which is a world in which I like, you know, I think it's I'm only how old am I now? Oh, my gosh, I'm 46. But man, all the years I spent where there got to be one smart girl. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like what I'm really pleased to be in a time that has opened up in which more than one smart girl can hang can be in a group that there that 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 we can have the conversations with each other. Oh, it's like it's great. And so who you know, who knows? And I this is one of the reasons why I'm so strongly anti-capitalist too, is because I am so excited to see what happens to poetry and literature outside of the realm of uh, empire mm. and of capital. Like just think about what poetry could be like right like 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 what the possibilities you know our species has so much that's good inside of all that's bad we live in a system which is always arranging to exaggerate what is bad about us to set us in competition against each other to degrade us in multiple forms right to leverage those things which we can't um, change about ourselves against ourselves um to have these sort of racialized and gendered roles um as if that, if we are able to change the arrangement of the world, then think about it, you know, revolution in the service of poetry, like think about what poetry could become, what literature would become. So that part's exciting. Oh, but what you said that I said, apparently, I also worry because I'm like, oh, damn, you know, what happens with the force of the marketplace exerting itself? Because this is real. Mm -hmm. It's is an absolutely real dynamic Um in which the more something moves into public view, the more convention, constraint, and marketability like set against it. And so I'm super lucky because I was very careful about the way that I did everything. And so I have absolutely the most like principled and cool literary agent possible, uh, Mel Fleshman. And um, she found me the most like protective and um, devoted editor who's utterly devoted to weird literature. Mm. And, and so I managed, it, it was almost as if I was going to like move into some world and I managed to like a world that I perceived as hostile. I, I moved into it with the two best guides possible people who would never ever ask me to do something that went against either my political or aesthetic instincts. And, um, you know, my hope is that, that, um, in those times in which I do choose, you know, to publish outside of small presses that I hold on to these people as, as this kind of force, um, around me to, to, um, help buffer, some of the other pressures it's weird I mean the marketplace is weird also because I think what people think is the marketplace is like superstition in some ways too so it's like fighting ghosts I don't know hmm. 
I mean, it's, I'm so happy you have these people. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think probably it's a, it's a kind of privilege that other writers don't have. And I think about that too, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to begrudge anyone, Mm -hmm. um, especially anyone who is trying to make a living by writing, which is an impossible thing to do, Mm -hmm. um, who is trying to, uh, you know, be successful in Mm -hmm. the marketplace because they are trying to live a life and stay alive and Mm -hmm. have health insurance and, you know, um, all of these things. And, and we, it's, it's impossible to live in this country or really on the planet outside of capitalism right now. Um, so I guess the question is, is there a way, I I guess this is sort of like, do you have advice for the people (laughs) who don't have those people? I also have to be clear that when I thought about, so the the way of moving into a different form of publication and distribution is actually about publication and distribution. And I got paid miserably bad for this book. So (laughs) I've never met anyone who got paid as Uh little for their nonfiction books as I got paid for this. How did that happen to you? Because at that time, I was just a poet from Kansas City. I hadn't won any awards or anything. Nobody like outside of the world of, of poetry knew who I was. And and it was Mel who was like, it was the agent. She's like, I get it. And um, she knew exactly who to send it to. And he was like, well, you know, Anne's just this weirdo in Kansas City. But I, he read it. He was enthusiastic. My editor was. And so at my, so, you know, we're poets. So I'm like, oh, any money. I'm rich, right? right? But not, not. And then I talked to people who are, who, who are in commercial publishing. And I was like, man, I got ripped off. So now it's kind of a joke where it's like, I was, I, we're at well, lunch. Yeah, and I was like, pe- man, you all got me at like Kansas City <laughs> thrift store clearance sale price. <laughs> Like I'm the ch- I'm the cheat I'm the le- I'm the most underpaid sellout there is. <laughs> well, no, because it wasn't even about that. Like my right. thought, my thought was like, how do I get in public libraries? Yes, yes. So it was totally, totally about like distribution. Yep. So it was because of because of just the challenges of distribution on small presses. It was completely so. My version of the marketplace was like, how do I get public libraries to stock my books? Yep. Like that's what that's what I was thinking is like not how do I get book sales or how do I get money I'm like how do I get into the same public libraries that provided me my education that's what I wanted and so that was what that was what I got and um and I don't even I like it's 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 almost too absurd to feel bad that I didn't that I found out later that perhaps I had not been adequately paid. Like I think I was maybe a little bit mad because I'd talk to dudes and they'd be getting like half a million dollars for something that I knew wasn't going to do as well as this book. And like there'd be a little bit of that competitive like I can't believe men get paid that much and like that 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 sense of of of, of uh, being like unfair in terms of gender. But you but even now it's like it's not like angry it's just like oh god I'm such an idiot that I just like that I just didn't know or don't know or like like just a total bumbling provincial whose happiness came from like oh it's gonna be in a public library somewhere right Right? like that just made me so happy it continues to make me happy this is just the dream right like the dream is that somebody picks up your book and reads it and it means something to them. It, it is. And also, I would say I want you to be paid enough <laughs> money 
from your book, which I devoured um, and has been truly life changing for me to read formally and in terms of the content so that if you are going through um, utter exhaustion, Mm -hmm. either as a result of the cancer treatment or as a result of being alive in the world today um, and being so receptive to the world around you that you are not um, in a position where you have to teach, you yeah. have to do more than teaching, you have to, you know, the, 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 those are not um, proper circumstances. And, you know, you write so much um, and have written so, so uh, movingly about work, about all the things that, you know, you, you know, why is... Uh, t- raising your daughter, not work, mm-hmm. not work that's compensated. Um, and then to know like even even this book, which really should and will reach a very large audience, um, even this book, which is work, you know. Well, no, definitely yeah. work. If I like, that's the other thing about it is like you think the amount of time or the number of years, like versus what you get paid. But it's just hard. I mean, I think all poets have this. Like, we just don't think of what we do as having uh, any kind of value. It's so hard. Maybe mm-hmm. people are changing about that. So hard to, to like conceive of things inside of the realm of of, of that. It's it's a challenge. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I feel, as I said, it's like funny. It's like funny joke. Maybe it's like, I'm a little bit embarrassed because it would be a lot. I don't know. Like I have a lot of pride or something like, Oh, I'm just made this like huge advance. And like, look at my nice new clothes and stuff. It's like, no, I didn't do any of that. Like Mm -hmm. I like really bad at selling out in the way you're supposed to sell out. But I just was (laughs) like, Oh, but the library, that's a great idea. That's like millions of dollars to me, like millions of dollars of worth of feeling like I accomplished the thing I was supposed to accomplish. Um, and you know, I like, there's I, I I I agree it's like I'm so exhausted and there were points at which I was gonna have to file for disability and then I would like go make my diet stricter was able to keep working but it's hard and it's I can't think I mean I have a job I love and mm. it's hard and I think about all of the people who have chronic illnesses or who survived cancer every day trying to both go to work and have a life that's worth living outside of work with the kind of scarcity of physical resources and it's tough and there is of course a part of me that like dreams of life like I don't really buy stuff or I like, buy books and store clothes and plants for the garden it's like I don't have I don't have an expensive standard of living and there's a dream that at some point in my life I could just be a writer mm-hmm. that like the world would just somehow like figure it out where if I keep my needs minimal, that I could wake up each day and write and read and maybe not be so physically exhausted all the time. Um, but, you know, the other thing, as I have a daughter who's in college now, mm-hmm. and she, was, she just told me, she was like, Anne, whatever you do, please don't be poor again. Mm. And so I have to sort of take her feeling about economic security or insecurity, like get her through this next stage of life, and then maybe I'm able to take some risks. Maybe things work out. Maybe people buy a lot of copies of the book and um, I make some royalties. I don't know. Yeah. I hope you have a good, like, contract. 
I do, I do. I mean, so okay. my my, okay, my agent's brilliant. So I, it, like, it just at the point at which the point at which the this all got done, she didn't have much to work with. She just had because it's. I I really think this is just pure speculation and paranoia. People in the coast get paid more money in book advances, mm-hmm. and that so there's like something about where you live that is so which how- has to do because you're like in the scene and you can get a lot of hype around you. And the other thing is, I think that up until a certain point, now it might be different. Poets just don't get paid very much because it's like if you're a poet, there's a little bit of a ding against you. I think there was a point at which major presses wouldn't even really touch any kind of book by poets mm-hmm. for a long time. Now. With the tremendous success of Ocean Vong and others that I think perhaps that the publishers know that poets are able to do some other kinds of works. I mean, I think we're saying two things which might seem contradictory, but they're really not contradictory. One is that there has been this enormous shift. Um, uh, and the other is like, okay, there's the, but there's still no money in it, um, which doesn't mean that there hasn't been a revolution right. either around what kinds of books people are taking risks and taking, um, how we're thinking more generously about what readers want and can right. handle and need and, and crave and not underestimating readers. I think you said uh, somewhere that you felt like there was kind of a turning point in 2011 yeah. where poets became, you know, where there are these uh, lefty poets who were really, what, oh, yeah. what, why did you choose 2011? I don't know. That just seemed to be, maybe it was just a turning point for me too. It just seemed to be a point at which American poetry began to turn and people, maybe that was, that was that year of, occupy all over Mm. like the year of the squares all over the world um and this fomentation of political action on the street which intensifies all the way up then 2014 is obviously this like massive historical year with ferguson and a shift in culture so that now we have things like really viable socialist candidates like Corbyn in the UK and Bernie here and even Warren, who's like moved further left than like yeah. the, uh, conceivable, right? Um, and, and that everything shifted where what people would have once mocked as a kind of naive utopian politics is now um, reality. Um. Will you read something else from Mm -hmm. The Undying? Absolutely. I've always hated every shade of the heroic, but that doesn't mean I've never had that look. The common struggle gets pushed through the sieve of whatever forms we have to make its account, and before you know it, the wide and shared suffering of the world is narrowed and gossamer, as thin as silk and looking as special as the language it takes to tell it. Language is common, too, but in the same insidious processes of finding a way to tell, Language gets attached as property to its teller, as if the singularity of any given mouth is a singularity of having been born or having felt pain, having been scared or having needed care, having set out to interpret the uninterpretable dream of waking up each day to the worst. The telling is always trying to slide down into a reinforcement of the conditions that makes us want to say something in the first place rather than their expose, as if the gravity of our shared diminishments is more powerful than any ascendant rage. Keenly felt suffering gets assigned to one type, some elegant specialist languorous and pale upper-class faintness of being, and in its telling comes out looking, no matter the reality, like a treasure of that class. 
If you didn't know me, you might think, too, that my illness was so precious it was merely a suffering for the sake of semiotics, that I sat in the infusion room thinking only of ancient Rome. But I was a single mother without savings when existed in a world of profit, had no partner to care for me or family nearby in a world that privatizes survival, had to work all through my treatment at a job where I was advised to never let on I was ill, had never had wealth or been proximate to the seats of power. In other words, my cancer, like almost anyone else's, was ordinary, as was apart from my practice of writing, my life. My cancer was not just a set of sensations, nor lessons in interpretation, nor a problem for art, although it was all of these things, too. My cancer was a captive fear that I would die and leave my daughter in a hard world with no resources, a fear, too, that I had devoted my life to writing and sacrificed all I had to never come to its reward. It was a terror that all I'd ever written would sit day to mind but not read in Google servers until even Google servers were made of dust. And in the meantime, I would become that unspeaking thing, a dead person, leaving too soon who and what I loved the most behind, unprotected and alone. There's your dream again, right? Um, so I'm so glad you read that passage because I think um, I want to ask you an impossible question, which is like, how did you manage to write this cancer memoir without spectacularization? Um, uh you, I've heard you talk about, um, and you use these phrases, which I'm really interested in the pornography of authenticity, mm -hmm. the pornography of particularity. Mm -hmm. And I think that this book really, um, you have to talk about the specifics. You have to talk about what is authentic. You have to, your plate, your, 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 you are just um, shoved face to face with all those things that you are also really skeptical of. And somehow I feel you've managed to not write the pornography of authenticity in this book, even at the same time that you are absolutely saying, this is what happened. This is what it means. This is how it felt. Um, look at this. Yeah, I mean, then there was the other thing, too, which was a peril of the book, which is like, well, I could just retreat into my intellectual and aesthetic life, right? And I could remove the particularities of my life from uh, intellectual contemplation of the book. And that felt wrong, too. Yeah, That was a thing I couldn't do because to do that was to render life merely an aesthetic object, merely a critical object. And that's not what I believe life is. Right, that life is something else than that. And so I had to both indicate that I am a person with p particular things, weird things about me, also ordinary things about me that really has a body. You know, in the book, there's this thing where it's like the body, my body, like I'd have to remind myself or I would try to sort of endlessly like reground it. No, this is happening to me. This isn't just like some abstraction. Mm -hmm. So I had to show the kind of material reality the individual particularities, the historical picture, and try to get some form of ideological critique in there, which is a really necessary part of any cancer writing 
I think that's going to be worth anything and part of the collective project of people who've been doing this ideological critique around cancer. So all that sort of had to go in there without making trauma porn. I mean, I wrote a list of rules, which is like, like no pornography, right? Like I could not submit like the woe is me tale. I couldn't do that form of account. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be that person anyways. It's like I didn't want like the, the, there are moments of the book that are lurid with suffering, but it wasn't going to be a book that was only about lurid suffering because that that's just like it, that couldn't do it wasn't honest like I just wanted the book to have whatever a kind of like that mishmash that constitutes the truth like all the contradictions to it's like you can't escape the contradictions you only can ripen them right like to like get in there and do that thing but I was you know uh, worried always worried and I was worried too because then you get to a certain age you're better at writing than you've been for like I mean I feel like I just I get better at writing and then I'm like well what if I just make this like what if this is too beautiful like what if the beauty is the lie like I don't want to tell the lie that's just like whatever years of practice of being a writer has has made it possible for me to have some, you know a certain facility with language like I don't want that to betray the experience either so all that stuff was in there and you know one of the ways that I dealt with it is I was like oh how about I just write about that like I, I just actually like go ahead and articulate the contradictions and articulate the struggles you trust a reader like you trust the readers are going to come to it that they're going to see things know things challenge things that you trust also the world as it is right now it's like well, what I didn't do someone else will mm. that there's all this just like people around who are always doing great things so even if I fail at certain parts of this like maybe even just my failure will be instructive to them about what they can do that's better than what I've done which is like I think part of the project of anyone involved in the arts is is entering what you have into the the general conversation in hope that someone even more talented than you are like can can continue visions forward and so I mean this passage like to me uh, felt in some ways like the kind of thesis of the book or something like that where where when I wrote it I I um, thought well this is like I don't I need to somehow say it's all of these questions and it's this question too mm -hmm. that that language is what I have and this is one of the problems that language presents well, and what if somebody is listening and thinking wait a second, I don't, what is the problem with writing a book that is full of lurid suffering? That's what happened to you. And yeah. why is authenticity possibly a pornography? What is the problem with making it too beautiful? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking of a listener who feels... Well, you're, you're probably right. Like, what, right. those questions which, which, which I've wrestled with forever, like, maybe are even absurd questions to ask myself or to wrestle with. I don't know. I mean, the problem is, is that this kind of stuff that... Oh, this is, sounds so naive. It's not true. Like the authentic is not the true. Mm. That, Say what you mean, right? That well, well, that that we're given these like various ideological forms, like received ideological forms that we believe constitute authentic life, which are in some way a deception from what the truth is. That these are these like socially like constructed interiorities, which we mistake for organically emanating from the inside, but in fact are like these materially and historically constructed things. And part of what a writer or any person who works in the arts has to do is to both give an account of those forms, those received forms, 
and move beyond them, right? Like what I said, right? You can't escape the contradiction. You only ripen it, right? So you have to do both. You have to have like the bothness or the multiplicity of vision to recognize that and move beyond it to interrogate it. I mean, I think actually, and this is one of the things that um, I've wrestled with in the past year, I've been thinking a lot about form and critique and poesis. And I think that um, like critique is, is necessary, but it's a really singular kind of thing. And that form making presents something that critique can't, like that form making that, um, has an aspect of critique but moves beyond that to create new worlds is like the real sort of possibility um, that the making of Poesis makes a new world um, and 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 so that's all but it's all wrapped up together it's all tied together that that as the task of the writer is to do all of this to have the tool of critique but not get caught up simply in the gesture of critique um, to have form making to to create new possibilities um, to see the world in its multiplicity. I think of you know Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Aurora Lee, the the um, Janice face um, as like the place of the poet who can see um, two places at once, mm -hmm. right? That like both has a clear view of of the world and of history and has the forward view of possibility and the unknown and the unmade and that that's what um we're supposed to be doing like that and so that's one of the problems is that it's too easy i think i suppose that we fall into received forms and we fall into conventions um and by doing so we occlude um the truth, which is a very strange, big, and naive word to use, but yet somehow that through this whole book and the whole process was the one that kept getting back to me. I would go through and revision. I'd just say, is it true? Is it true? Where have I been deceived? Where am I deceiving myself? Is it true? Not so much to take things away, but to add to them. Because if this thing that I think isn't true, why do I think it? Mm -hmm. Like, where did I get that from? Mm-hmm. All right, what can I say about me getting that untrue thing from the world? Right. I mean, I think so many, so many, my thoughts are like exploding, but I think, I think that you've just um, described what I was trying to describe about the book, which is it's, it's not enough um, to say, my experience or the truth of being a woman, a mother, mm -hmm. a cancer victim, even that word, right? Mm -hmm. Or survivor, yeah, even that word, or uh, anything that language can, you know, uh, use. Um, it's not it, to, to the first step, perhaps, is to say um, these preconceived notions of who I am or what I am or the experience of being these things, um, these received forms in which we, and the language mm -hmm. in which we um, try to uh, investigate um, the truth or not truth of, of those preconceived forms, um, that critique is not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not enough to say, hey, world, um, hey, capitalism, Hey, culture, um, that's 
I, 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 I am uh, suffocating in this corset of womanhood yeah. as it has been defined for me, but to make a new form is a different kind of critique. And I, that's why I don't know what to call the book (laughs) because you made a new form and that is a form of critique that is beyond critique. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's, that's why poetry is just as good as any, I mean, the being a poet. So if it's not poetry, I'm a poet. And what do poets do? They make forms. Mm -hmm. Like this is the work of the poet and they make forms in everything that, that, that it's not just in language, but you know, the poets like, like work as the poesis is the the, the making of, of what didn't exist before. And that that's always going to be the ground. Like that is always, it is no matter what I write or what I work on, Everything I am and do owes itself to the work of a poet and to what I see as the possibilities of poetry. You know, someone was saying that it was really funny that we poets think our art's the best of all art. But I was like, yeah, but that's because our art is the best art. <laughs> <laughs> like, we can have your musicians say that. And I'm like, well, it's because music owes itself to poetry. I was like, poetry and dance. Like, these are the er arts. Everything else. Like, music's just the meeting place of those two. I was like, you know, like, we, that, that the body and the breath. Like, this is, this is like, the fundamental of, of, of all making and, 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 um, all things come from it. And if the world falls apart, somebody by a fire in a desert late at night without even being literate is going to make a poem, going to make a dance. So these are the two, like the twin originators of, of all human creativity. So that's also just, I mean, again, poets prejudice towards poetry that I believe it, but it really does mean something to me. And it's really the reason, like I had to, I always have to resist being a critic I always have to resist critique because like anyone else, I think there's so much wrong with the world and I could just spend, you know, um, years like shouting into the void about all the things that's, that are all, all, all I see that's wrong with the world. Um, but I, I decided, I think at some point it's like, well, I have to do something with my life and I'm going to make this other kind of commitment to another way of making a point, like another way of telling, another way of making the world and this will be my practice, and um, I will resist the allurement, which is real, of critique, which is the, the thing about that is you get a more immediate um, social response from critique than you do from form making. But I think you get maybe, hopefully, a more durable one from mm-hmm. form making. Well, to just go back to this passage for a second, um, I mean, this is kind of a personal... Mm-hmm. Uh, moment of discovery for me in in my book that just came out and in my work you know one of the real um, wounds and obsessions and um, problems is uh, the issue of the personal and the public and the mm-hmm. private mm-hmm. and the public and I have, you know, thought about this so much and read about it and, and, you know, discussed it in therapy and in class Mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, this question of whether, um, I mean, I think this is why, um, your work messed me up in this incredible, incredibly important way. Uh, Garments Against Women, The Undying, and listening to you talk about, um, poetry, received forms, making new forms, Mm -hmm. and specifically the private and Mm -hmm. privatization. Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I just torment myself with the idea that I'm hurting all these people by writing about them, that I'm, you know, doing something I'm not supposed to be doing, that I'm too much, that I'm reveal you know, that it's, that it's, um, you know, if I write about my body or my yeah. sex life or my this or my that or my children, yeah. you know, I'm violating their privacy. I'm violating a social contract. I am hurting the people that I love. Yeah. I am doing things that are wrong. I am a bad person um, and I should be ashamed of myself and uh, no one should buy the book and I should somehow like buy all the copies and burn <laughs> them, right? And so... I had this moment <laughs> where I was like, wait a second. I think Ann Boyer is saying that things that are private are called private by people in power who do not want people with less power to acknowledge those things that the people in power are calling private. And just like we know, like, oh, the privatization of prisons is very, very bad. Mm -hmm. Prisons are bad anyway. But we, we, do as a, as a, we do know that privatization is not always or maybe ever a good thing. And, but yet we, can, we, we can't quite bring that over to the realm of like how we kind of fetishize the private. Yeah. Um, and I... I I don't know. I, 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 I know what's going to happen is like, I'm right now I feel, I feel attached to this and strong about this and then it's going to go away and I'm going to go back into the shame. Well, no, I mean, it's hard and you know, it's, it's, there's just a lot that doesn't go into my books for these various reasons of like not knowing whose story, like, I just, I, I, the joke with my friends, well, I kept the best parts for myself. Like I've kept a lot of private joy, I guess, mm -hmm. or something like that. Like I protected our joy together because, because I'm not knowing whose story was whose and it's all very confusing and I don't have an answer, but I do know this is that what we think of our privacy is being raided constantly by corporate interest, right? So there's this kind of privacy, which we're utterly disallowed, mm -hmm in which everything about us is turned into data bodies and circulated as forms of profit in these like massive corporate structures. The people who do that aren't burning with shame. Mm -hmm. But we try to talk about our pain or joy or love or hate. And we've just committed to TMI, right? Mm -hmm. Like that we're supposed to be ashamed of ourselves. It almost would lead you to believe that our lives are not our own, but that they belong, that, that there are people who believe that our lives belong to them, that um, every form of sharing is supposed to be um, turned into some sort of like corporate fodder for Facebook um, or even our medical records or banking records or educational records like that this 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 form of life is the form of life this like circulating datafied abstracted form of life is is a shameless 
and that we ourselves, like these fleshy, embodied, conflicted, troubled beings who love and hate and feel pain and feel pleasure, are supposed to be ashamed of how we live, of who we are. It's part of, I think, the attempt to alienate us from our own experience. And so I want, like, God, I want all things. It's terrible. But I want to do both. Like, I'm just like, I want, this is my life, right? I have lived these things. I've felt these things. These things have happened to me. And I'm not like exceptional. I'm just a person and all of these people on the planet. But that that is my life. And I don't get another probably. Um, and and the, the world that wants to take that away from me to say that that's unspeakable, that it's impolite, just fuck that world. But also fuck the one that wants me to sell it in certain ways to create spectacles of uh, especially like white feminine suffering mm -hmm. or spectacle like like spectacles of like what it's like to to come have certain kinds of um, painful or traumatic experiences like fuck that world too, and that in in order to hold on like to find like the least alienated way to be right inside of alienating structures to both um, acknowledge the kind of, like to acknowledge the, these these structures of the world and to move beyond them like that's the task and so it's 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 just oh god it's just like the bothness like you do both and we may never get over the shame I mean I know that shame and caution and self-protection are also in a lot of ways useful because when you do things you're not supposed to do, you get punished for them. Mm -hmm. And that's real. Mm -hmm. And that I have seen again and again, especially in the literature of women, like the way that um, responses to it pathologize women's experiences, make certain kinds of like deeply personal and terrible like remarks about them and I know you know that 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 we should take good enough care of ourselves to know that to make careful decisions about the risks we're willing to take but also to take the risk to feel less alienated like to take the risk to claim the world to say that you know I was born right I lived mm -hmm. I, I struggled sometimes things were good and sometimes they were bad to tell that and in that telling I mean if you know ultimately like who we are falls away and the telling takes on this other life and the minds of readers and their experiences too and I would be so bereft all the books that I've read like the books by women like all these accounts of life people have been dead for a long time people who are as different from me as they could be if they hadn't taken the risk if they hadn't done those things I wouldn't be myself because they gave me life, like they gave form to my being. And so we do it. Is that, this is the, this is like my weird Oprah question all of a sudden. I'm like, what is happening to me? I mean, I guess I'm imagining that that was sustaining to you in moments where on top of being infuriated that you had cancer that you suddenly found yourself a woman writing about cancer. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> what the fuck? I think when I first got diagnosed, I was so mad. I think a lot of women have this experience. I was like so mad I got such a gender disease. I was like, oh, you know, you spend your whole life trying to like thwart uh, gender stereotypes, you know, like 
oh, but even internalized misogyny where like you just at least at least you know the the struggles over the course of life to like get rid of the parts of me that thinks that being a woman is lesser and then i'm presented with all those fucking like fake ass pink ribbons everywhere and like tatas and like i'm supposed to like like have all these like stereotypical feminine like reactions to things and so I'm in this mess of seeing what oh god like like where do where does my like weirdly uncomfortable sense of my own gender like fall into this like incredibly gendered thing but I think in the book I say you know there's the t-shirt this cancer messed with the wrong bitch and in the book I write but in my case cancer messed with the right bitch because it did <laughs> right because it's like it, then I was like well fuck this because I am smart enough that I can like like cancer thinks it's going to like, like the ideology thinks it's going to fuck with me. But I have spent my whole life, right, in careful study and thinking and preparation. Um, both uh, the preparation of, like, developing a politics, like Marxist feminism, the preparation of developing an art, right, of, of learning to be a writer and a, a, a reader of, of other people and of the reader of the world. It's like, I'm going to rise to this challenge. And so they can throw all their fake-ass pink ribbons at me, and I'm going to come back with something so powerful that the New York Times would say, just take your pink ribbon and burn it, which it did. Miracle of miracles. I was like, oh, my best friend, Kara. I was sending her like a picture of the headline. I'm like, can you believe there's this picture of me sitting on my front porch in Kansas City with a headline in the New York Times that says, burn your pink ribbon. I was like, five years ago. This never would have happened. I was like, how did the world rise to meet the occasion? of this book and then as best friends do she's like and I think whatever you write the world will rise to meet oh. the occasion of but it was like it's a that like man that feels good it so feels so good. so talk about what is the problem with the pink ribbon and also this is this is something I really wanted to ask mm -hmm. you about you know the problem with gratitude also yeah. well I mean the pink ribbon in in itself is it should not be. It like shouldn't be a problem. Mm -hmm. And I understand all of the people who use it as an identifier. And sometimes I'll see a woman with a pink ribbon tattoo and I feel whatever that solidarity across struggle. And so it is not for those who find it useful that is good. But it also represents this corporatization of the suffering of women without the real alleviation of women's suffering. So it is a machine of corporate profit and absurdly, absurdly decorates the things which kill people. Guns, mm -hmm. fracking rigs, um, carcinogenic products. Um, and also it, it really like marks in some ways the birth of a kind of corporate charity structure, which is like this kind of like way this like uh, accumulating of wealth um in in um a few hands um that goes towards this absurd thing awareness as opposed to making the lives of women better particularly uh, in this case it is stage four breast patient cancer ca breast cancer patients sorry and metastatic uh uh 
patients who have struggled the most against pink women, pink ribbon. So they're like, when I talk about this, I get, I get something, but they have struggled um, against it because they are the people who've been the most left behind as if these like relentlessly positive uh, corporate charities do not want to deal with dying women. And so they, in the book, I talk about uh, Coop Dizzle, a vlogger who was really important to me while I was sick and who had the same diagnosis and who ended up dying. And um, she was, you know, sort of by her own account, a wife and mother, just, you know, a person Mm -hmm. who was in her 30s and had this happen to her and became an activist against uh, pink ribbon culture and its betrayal. Of, of women with cancer and re- like just a remarkable, uh, like utterly remarkable story. Um, like many of the people who, who experience cancer and like rise to the challenge in whatever capacity they have. Um, I also understand and I worry about the people who have found, for example, things like pink ribbon culture, um, 5Ks, uh, positivity, all that stuff. If that's been what they've clung to to survive and they read my book, I worry because I don't want to take away the structure of comfort that they have found in these things. Like I don't want to be that person, especially for everyone who has been through what um, people with cancer have. But... On the other hand, I know that I'm not alone in feeling my suffering compounded by the betrayals of corporate charity um, and wanted to speak out against it. I will say, too, Breast Cancer Action is just a phenomenal activist group and is the one that both um, continuously issues critiques um, works tirelessly in October against like the falsities and deceptions of pink ribbon culture and has um, in many ways like is the living embodiment of struggle against this this sort of debasement of life and death that happens um, inside of pink ribbon culture. You know, there's definitely, like there's a history to it and other people have written about it so elegantly that, um, like a book, Darker Ribbon and others that my book only kind of like, in a section called The Hoax sort of falls on some of this background, but doesn't dwell in it because there are other really great books um, about it, Uh, but, But it's, I think that there has to be a way that we can have signs of solidarity um, between patients and survivors and caregivers and everyone else that um, aren't so craven Mm -hmm. and destructive as pink ribbon culture has become. And I think that one of the really sad stories about pink ribbon culture is this became the model for, for all of this like sort of charity washing that um, the success of breast cancer as this like benign and noble charity has influenced all other um, kinds of things similarly. And that there's a particular like challenge for people who've had uh, interactions with breast cancer to speak out against all forms of this. I mean, we have it now with greenwashing, right? With like eco everything in which the crisis is mobilized for profit of the large corporations. Um, and it's an insult. 
I think it's very clear in the book that you are in no way, you know, trying to take away the the strength of solidarity mm-hmm. um, as it's as it um, is there for many women who 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 want that, but that it is important to think about who's profiting from that particular brand, literally brand of solidarity. Um, I'm not going to get into it too much, you know, but I'm, I had a hysterectomy in May that I quote unquote needed. So now I'm a hyster sister. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm in this whole new world of, of, but there's a very specific way that you are supposed to be a hyster sister. You're supposed to, you know, post all these pictures about how happy you are and how it was the, how your hysterectomy was the best thing you ever did. And why did you wait so long? And now you're back to exercising and, you know, um, and the, the doctors, there's all, you know, it's, there's all this crazy, uh, empowerment where they tell you like, well, you know, you can continue to suffer if you feel that you need your uterus to feel like a woman, or you could just get it out and everything will be fine. And, uh, you know, everything is not fine. And um, none of this deals with the sort of structural realities that there isn't enough research, there isn't enough, you know, alternative care, there isn't enough care. I got a, I got a letter yesterday from the insurance company informing me that um, uh, I stayed overnight after my hysterectomy, even though it is supposed to be an outpatient, no overnight stay. I mean, it was like hilarious. Not at all. Double mastectomy. Yeah, I mean, your description of 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 having to go teach, I mean, hit me so hard. I mean, I don't. I think they would have had to. I don't know what, like, like wheelchair me out to the to the sidewalk and just dump me there. I was on a million types of pain medication, all these things. Anyway, I got an an a letter yesterday just informing me that. Um, the insurance company had um, ruled that it was not a necessary overnight stay. It cost $40,000 yes. for one night. Yes. But don't worry, because the hospital is not legally allowed to charge me for this money. I mean, thank God for me. But, you know... I- you know, every single part of this, like, that's not like, that's not really like what the Hister Sister movement, hashtag Hister Sister, is talking about, like about, you know, wait a second, if you're going to have major surgery, let's talk about what that's going to look like, not, you know, that you were able to do a 5k, I'm so glad you were, you know, six months later, but like, you, the hospital is going to try to kick you out after major surgery, yeah. Let's talk about that. Well, I mean, this is this is like really the thing. Like this, this is one of the the troubles with the feminism that we're given in the world. Right? Just empowerment feminism is like the least empowering thing in the world. It's a horrible. It really is. It's like, and it's so frustrating because we need the kind of feminisms that will actually rearrange the world, and instead, we're always giving the poor substitute. Like, I just like the paucity of freedom. Right. Like we're given a kind of non-freedom called for freedom and told like like treated like we're stupid enough to believe that that's what we want. 
And like, no, we're not that stupid. We know what we want. We want to be adequately cared for. We want people to have enough. You know, like we, it's, 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 uh, everything is, is taken back inside these like atomized individuals that we have all of the weight of positivity. And well, if you can't meet that, that means there's got to be something wrong with you. But real solidarity is forged in like the material relations between us. It's like in the stuff that we change together. And so instead we're given this like deceptive, ludicrous thing that's supposed to look like our empowerment, that's supposed to look like our freedom. And we all know better. Everybody knows better. And, you know, of course, like we all do what we can to survive. And sometimes you just have to like attach to whatever to get through. And I understand it because I sure have like attached to a lot of stuff, uh, like various points to make it through to the next hour or minute or day or year. But um, we can definitely ask more of the world than this one and I I mean I also am grateful because it seems like that despite what we're sold what we're given is the only available option there's always pushback against Mm -hmm. it there's always people who say no not enough right it is it is not enough for us to be treated like that one of the things that I really appreciate about you um is that you don't apologize for how much you write. (laughs) And this thing about being too much um, has been like levied against me, like some kind of epithet of like repulsion. And I'm really interested in that, in, in people's ideas about how much other people, particularly women, should write or not write, <laughs> should do or not do, um, should be present and, you know, in your face or, you know, please right. be quiet, be really quiet. And I know you wrote a hundred poems in one day. I did. <laughs> and then you read them all the day before or the day of your, your 40th birthday. Yeah. I love this story. <laughs> And I know it, 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 at least it's an urban legend that you have a lot of unpublished manuscripts. Yeah, Is this true? I love to write and I hate to publish. And so I always did. Maybe it'll change because like I like the part where you're making the thing, but I hate the part where you have to like do the other part, like answer email about it and uh-huh. all the stuff that happened. And so I have I have a lot of stuff. I mean, I know like when I spoke with Alice Notley, who's you know, one of the goddesses of, of the world, uh, for my writing life, you know, I know she has a lot of unpublished, um, manuscripts, but I think that she would like to publish all of them. Um, it's just like the publishers who are kind of like, well, not too many, you know, at, at one time, but for you, it's, it's not that it's more like just the work of the publishing part is not. Yeah. It's just hard to, you know, when I was so back when things were a lot harder and I didn't have a full-time job yet and I was a single mom and we were just broke and always struggling. It's like, well, I couldn't do, I can only do one thing. I can't write and like be public because being public is exhausting, especially back in the day where I'd just be like constantly like stalked and sexually harassed. Like anytime being, you know, like a woman poet is just 
just horrible, right? Like being a woman in public was just horrible, stressful and distracting. And then it's like, well, I can do one thing and I would much rather write. And like if I have like the kind of work that goes into being public is a lot of work and 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 too much for me to handle at the time. And so I kind of made that decision that I would not really have, like I would not really do maybe a traditional poetry career. I would just write as much as I could and sometimes make PDFs or whatever, but like not worry so much about the other part. Also I have, I mean, I have pathologies. Like I just have real problems. I have like real shyness and and like really weird psychological pre- prohibitions, I guess what people might think like fear of success or something like that in which like I can't, like I get really anxious mm-hmm. about drawing attention to myself that something bad's gonna happen to me probably because bad shit has happened to me when I've drawn attention to myself in life and I grew up in a place in which girls aren't supposed to do that and it was always just wrong like a very conventional world and and um and the reason Garments Against Women got published is really just has to do with the good fortune of me getting cancer so that I couldn't freak out and not publish it because it had, I turned it like the final matter. So Janet at Holmes had come to me, wanted a book. This is book that stuff that had been written in the drawer for a long time. And then I was like, she asked for a book and I was like, this seems like an Asada kind of book. Like maybe I'll send this thing that I have, this weird stuff for the drawer to her because of the stuff that they do and then she wanted it and I get it in and then I immediately get diagnosed with cancer and it's Cassandra Gillig who did all the work to make it happen like I didn't do any of the copy edits I didn't know what it was going to look like I didn't see the typesetting I didn't see the cover nothing Janet and Cassandra did all the work of the post product or whatever that that part of it's called the part that is where I've always gotten stopped up and haven't gotten books out in the past is not in the writing them but it's in the stuff where it makes it makes it into a book that's the part that I always would stop what I was doing um and uh so it was like just the good fortune of be me being too weak to freak out mm-hmm. and say I can't handle it and God what a surprise I was just like end up doing okay and people like it and I was like so shocked because um, I couldn't really I didn't do a lot of promotion or anything I really didn't have any expectations and so that happened but I've worked I'm working hard on myself uh, to not the way that I oh how do I explain this. The way that I treated myself about publishing, any other woman that I know, if they treated themselves like that, I would be so upset. And I would be like, what do you mean you like write all this stuff and you're scared and shy and you don't want to draw attention to yourself or you're like afraid of bringing trouble to your life by doing this? Like, what do you mean? Like, why are you acting like this? I would have like, I would, I can't. Like all the writers that I love, if I found out they were doing it, I think they'd be ridiculous to do it um I must have obviously been trying to protect my energy and protect my life in the way that I knew how but I've been trying really hard to not be that way anymore so the undying is a really good example of that I think by getting myself sort of bound contractually to something it really made it like maybe that was like a thing that helped Jeremy my editor being such a sweetheart and understanding me so much like helped a lot um in like overcoming that fear which is real I mean I imagine it's probably just uh, so I always I think I know because we all have these sort of pathological personality aspects I mean I think I know my whole life that I'm just like a hair's breadth away from not doing like like of turning away or like not sharing 
but I don't want to be because I don't think that that's the way it's supposed to be. I think that's probably not me. I think that's probably something that's done to me, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to like make those decisions anymore. So that's kind of that's kind of it. I mean, I'm not. It's like I'm not in any hurry to publish the old stuff because it just seems sort of irrelevant in some ways too. Mm. Like it's there, and I learned a lot from writing it. Um, and I want to write new stuff. And I think probably maybe I'll do a collection of poetry that's maybe the best of some of all that stuff. But um, I don't know. I mean, I also just, I, I it's, it's almost weird and wrong to talk about it because I haven't figured the part of myself out yet. So I don't want anyone to think, because I like, like I don't, I don't want people who don't publish to think they're doing something wrong just because I think maybe I was doing something wrong not doing it. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think that everyone has to share everything and actually not me but I also don't want people to think that I thought I was doing something right by not publishing my work because I think maybe I wasn't I think maybe I was just like I'd had so many so I I should say this is like when I got involved in poetry I'd quit writing for years and then when my daughter was small and I was in an abusive relationship and I had to get out and I just wanted to die and I decided to write poetry again and it saved my life but then I got into poetry and I immediately met with like an onslaught of like sexual harassment and like stalking and like really super aggro and pleasant behavior, which was so discouraging. And I thought like here I'm trying this like real material struggle to keep me and my daughter and I alive to recover from abuse, to like make a life in the world that's worth living. And I think poetry is going to save my life. And I go to this like poetry world in which at that point was so foul there's so many like, horrible things happening in it and I was like well how do I keep poetry but not deal with these clowns mm. right like how do I keep poetry but not have to like constantly feel like I'm fending off um aggressive behavior and I know it sounds dramatic I hope it's different now but I suspect sometimes it's not like when I hear stories of other people who enter poetry only to find like various forms of misogyny and abuse I don't know if you don't want to talk about it you don't totally yeah. don't have to but like are these are, are these readers are these other poets yeah are it was editors? other poets I mean so are I don't these? know if you if, yeah it was just like it was, so remember, this was like the Wild West of the internet. So this is how, back in the early 2000s, and so this is how I'd become, because I'd never even been to New York City. I'd never been east of the Mississippi. I'd only been on an airplane like twice in my life. I'm in my 30s, and I'm like, this this, 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 this is how I'm all coming to this. So truly, like, just truly in like this really, like, position of not understanding much about certain parts of the world and and I had a blog and it was just like I called attention to myself and felt as if the result of that was just endless trouble Mm. like trouble I didn't need and certainly trouble I didn't deserve and then I wasn't the only one a lot of the people who are doing this stuff are kind of like serial stalkers and harassers where you can find all these stories of, of writers who had the same thing but it was stressful it'd be things like I couldn't I would be afraid to give readings because they people would make threats and stuff there are people who are angry when I spoke out about feminist issues I'd get death threats like seems like a hassle public life seems like a hassle right at that point that version of the internet that was and there was like this like weird lack of shame about any of these people doing this and there was a lot of protection of others and and um, my experience in graduate school, too, had been one in which was a terrible situation of sexual harassment. And so I really think maybe I just associated those public parts 
um, with that kind of trouble. Mm. And it did something to me where I loved the pleasure of writing and I hated, I hated the part where I felt exposed to um, like these various forms of trouble or of danger. And it's been a lot to kind of get through. I mean, I think one of the great things about getting older and certainly after cancer, um, men for the most part stopped hassling me. I mean, it's like once in a while, but so getting older is you don't get hassled as much, but you could never forget that just because you're not getting it doesn't mean that it's still not going on. Mm -hmm. And like, it's really like such a strong um, desire for people not to go through that anymore. Like for that, for the art, we need to save our lives to not be the place where like we feel like our lives are diminished by entering it. I mean, in, in the happy ending version of this story, which despite everything I crave, mm -hmm. I picture the readers, um, your readers, um, particularly from the end of, of, of the undying, but of all of your books, just, you know, coming together as this uh, visible shield around you yeah. and to say, you know, this is a safe public uh, existence like we uh, we kneel down in a circle around you and say <laughs> thank you for publishing these books no, I, wouldn't, I, I would feel bad if everyone were kneeling okay, but we well, all just recline so we can see you so we can see in, how about this in very comfortable upholstered seats that 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 are fully accessible that are you know arranged in a, in a circle around you so that everybody can see you and hear you and it that you're protected. I do have to say, this <laughs> reminds me of one of the best writer's stories, which is um, the description of uh, a description of Tolstoy's funeral. So when Tolstoy dies, he's going to be buried in like this little like, kind of like valley or ravine on his property. And everyone in Russia is heard and all of the people, um, all of the peasants and the workers who love him and all like gather around for the funeral and the police are like incredibly afraid that his death is going to foment um, riotous or revolutionary behavior as they should have been because I mean Tolstoy was this like incredibly like powerful and articulate voice for for at least a certain kind of freedom so the police should be scared about Tolstoy's death and um, as they lure Tolstoy into his grave everyone falls on their knees and there are policemen there who are standing, and the crowd just starts yelling, down on your knees, mm. policemen, down on your knees. And so that the policemen are, like, like left, like, that, they, that they're the ones who do not get to, like, partake in, like, the moment, right? That they're isolated or alienated, that they're ashamed, like, they're the people who can't like partake in the dream of freedom so that they too have to sort of fall to their knees because it's not just Tolstoy. Like obviously when the people are there uh, at Tolstoy's death, it's like not just a per it's not just like one person or a great man or something like that. It's just that Tolstoy was able because of his like, relative talent and privilege or whatever to articulate a common dream of freedom mm -hmm. and of a world that's better than than the world of greed and militarism and violence. Um, 
that everyone was sharing at that time. And so that, like, even when they fall, when the, when the people recognize the dream, it's not just Tolstoy. It's, like, something so much greater than what Tolstoy is. And that, that, that like, challenge to the police to, like, choose what side they're on is, like, the side of freedom and the people or, or to stand there um, is it was something else. And so it's always, like, a, like you think, of like, oh, what do you want to do as a writer? And it's, yeah, I was like, I want to, I want to like, like, give voice to whatever, like that better freedom, that other thing beyond what we're told is what we're supposed to want, like that project that so many people are a part of, that dream that so many of us have, like to figure out how how to bring it into the world so vividly. Mm. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, I you're giving a reading I am. soon, and so <laughs> let's let's stop okay. and and so that you can rest. And this has just been amazing. Thank you so much, Anne. Well, thank you for having me. This was a wonderful, this was a wonderful conversation. I hope some of it made sense. It, and I hope whoever listens to it forgives my contradictions if I didn't make sense. You have been listening to episode 78 of Commonplace with Ann Boyer. This episode was produced by me, Katie Fernelius, Christine LaRusso, and Doreen Wang. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. The music you're listening to was written by Judah Darwin Zucker-Gorin and performed by Judah on keyboard, drums, and melodica. Many thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew, Asada Press, and Coffeehouse Press for books for this episode. Many thanks to Book Culture on Columbus for allowing me to record Ann Boyer's reading. Thank you to Omain Gruich and Justin Todd Smith for transcribing this and other episodes. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to everyone who supports Commonplace through your encouraging messages and by recommending the podcast to friends and students. And to you, listener, thank you for listening. Thank you.